Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brindad, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk/changeagents. Joining me today is Dame Stephanie Shirley. Dame Stephanie is a British technology pioneer who founded the software company Freelance Programmers, which employed hundreds of professional women with dependents. The business went on to become hugely successful, and Dame Stephanie now devotes much of her time to philanthropy, having donated tens of millions of her own personal wealth to charity. So, Dame Stephanie, it's an honour to have you here, and Lovely you've had an incredible career. But I'd really like to start at the beginning and、um, really get to know from when you first came to the UK and how, obviously, that shaped you in your life. Well, I'm glad you asked that because it did actually drive the whole of my life and certainly my professional career. I came to this country as a five-year-old, unaccompanied refugee from the Kinder Transport, and I was extremely lucky to be one of ten thousand children who were saved from Nazi Europe at that time. It was a two and a half day journey. It was not pleasant. I'll talk about it if you like,、um, but it had an enormous impression on me. Really, early trauma. I was moving to a country with a, a different nationality, though that didn't wasn't important at the time. Different parents, different food, different language, and having eventually. Learned to cope with that sort of change. I realised that I could cope with change, and it's not going to frighten me. Now I love change. I deliberately, I like to do new things all the time. I like to make new things happen, and that, of course, stems from those early days. But the other thing that that experience really did for me,、um, not terribly healthy.、Um, people kept saying to me, "Aren't you lucky to be saved?" And indeed, I was.、Um, And I was very lucky in my foster parents,、uh, darlings Guy and Ruby Smith.、Um, but it's not he- healthy, really, to say to a child, "You're lucky to be alive."、Mm. Um, and it did leave me with a need to justify my survival. And so I decided、um, very early on, unhealthily early, to make mine a life that was worth saving. And so I don't fritter my time away.、Um, I enjoy my clothes, but I don't have a yacht to sail around the world.、Uh, live relatively modestly, and I'm still working. So when you were a child and finding your own identity in amongst all that change, part of that was also finding what you liked at school,、um, being part of school, and you developed a talent for mathematics. So how did that come about? And did you feel that at that time, when all this change was happening, that that kind of talent was nurtured? 
I don't really know where the mathematics came from. I mean, I was not gifted or anything. So try again. Uh, I don't know where that came from. Um, I, although I was gifted, I was nothing exceptional. But I had to change schools twice in order to get tuition. Because, Liana, at that time, girls were not taught science. I mean, the only science thought respectable was botany. And we didn't do any of the other things. So it was quite hard to get tuition. And I finished up at a boys' school, which was uh, an experience, a useful forerunner of the sexism of the workplace later on. How, how did that come about, though? Did, um, so it, it would have been your foster parents that had really pushed that, right? Or did you tell them that whatever happens, you need to put me in this school? No, oddly enough, I started off at a little Roman Catholic convent where in those days the nuns wore habits and white wimples and black. And um, they were lay teachers, but they had sufficient professionalism to say to my foster parents, this child is gifted and we can't teach her anymore. She should go elsewhere. And I assure you, it was not because I was a naughty pupil. So, as you said, while you were trying to get that education, get into maths, that also kind of mirrored what you'd probably have to face <laughs> later on in your life in work in terms of how women were treated in very male-dominated uh, um, industries. So can you walk us through the start of your career and maybe how the treatment was for you as a woman in IT? Well, I didn't go to university. And at the age of 18, I started off in the public service as a scientific civil servant. Um, and it was like a junior mathematical clerk, uh, but in a wonderful place, the Dollis Hill Post Office Research Station, which is surrounded by, you know, I learnt a lot. It was absolutely wonderful place to start. But to my horror, the pay scales, and I started on the grand salary of £215 a year. It was unbelievable what inflation has done. Um, but the pay scales went by age and by gender. There was one pay scale for men and another much lower pay scale for women. And I found that, that was really... I, I was horrified. And um, when handsome young men used to offer to carry my equipment for me, I had one of these great big comptometer things. Um, I used to reply, and I was quite, became quite aggressive. I believe in equal pay. will carry my own things. Because nowadays, Leanna, I sort of say, oh, how kind. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel that during that, um, that time there were any standout or light bulb moments where you're like, this has to change and I will not accept this? I think it was a gradual understanding that even in good employers, and they were, they were good, I had a second employer, um, I was not going to be able to be evaluated for my capabilities or for my work. And I'm a person who's defined by their work, so that was pretty important to me. The thing that actually made me decide to go my own way was a man, not a particularly sexist one, who just sort of said, that's nothing to do with you, you're technical. He didn't actually say, you're a woman, you're technical. So I was keeping me at a technical level. And um, once you realise that you don't have to put up with um, being fondled, being denigrated, being uh, people being basically 
smarmy because I was a pretty young thing, um, but just not respected. It's that word that one wants respect, I think. Um, and um, I decided pretty quickly I'm going to set up my own organization. Uh, it's going to be the sort of company, the organization that I want, would like to work with and that I know other women would like to work with as well. Very flexible, very um, team working, all women. And um, I think that's what I'm largely still remembered for. Only recently the Me Too movement has really come to fruition and um, actually called out a lot of that behaviour that has been maybe happening less overtly and more behind the scenes, but bringing, you know, a rise to that. How have you um, been viewing that, um, how have you been viewing that movement unfolding? And in terms of how, what would you say is the way that we can move forward from it? I am delighted that at long last one has this, and it's not just in this country, it is a global movement, you know. Um, really, what I hope also is that it doesn't, the culture doesn't sink back to where it was before, when we've had other step functions for women, particularly in the two world wars. Women came into their own in World War I and were doing all sorts of exciting things, but afterwards the men came back and we had to... Um, so I hope that's not going to happen with, with, with me too. There is still a lot to do. Um, I think in the Western world it's very easy to kid ourselves that it is now a cultural thing, it's no longer legal. Certainly that is true um, in my career when things I was fighting for, um, and I did become quite aggressive, were legal things, the right to work, the right to serve, the right to equal pay. And now all those have gone. Um, what one is left with is a culture that is still quite hostile to women and assumes that the average person is male. And so one of the things that, you know, after you were talking about, you know, working um, with all those other peoples, that you set up freelance programmers in 1962. And that at, at that time, that's even more incredible that it was all women, correct? Well, we were the laughing stock of the industry. People really laughed. A woman's company, quite apart from I was selling software, which at that time was given away free with the hardware. And everybody said, well, you can't sell software, least of all a woman. So um, it was quite hard to get going. But of course, we were memorable as a woman's company. And I think we tried to, in the early days, very much exploit that. Though as the organisation grew and we became you know, a major corporate, um, we downplayed that historic start because people were remembering us for what we were rather than what we could do. And we were running major, major projects. When, when you um, started the company, one of the amazing things about it was that you did something that not a lot of other companies would do as well. It was actually about flexible working time or working from home. Can you talk about when you first installed that in the company? Like, what were the things that you discovered with enabling that kind of work structure, especially all for women? I discovered all the wonderful things that women could do if you gave them an environment in which we're comfortable, in which we are able to combine professional work at a high level with perhaps family responsibilities. Some people were caring for disabled partners. Mostly we were caring for young children. So the vast majority of our early staff were in the 
age range of women who had children from naught to about seven. Most, at that time, people tended to go back to work. It was conventional to stop, um, to stop working. Um, on marriage, you know, people would sort of say, oh, you're going on working? I thought Derek had a good job. So it wasn't this uh, an environment where people were expected to go on working, women were expected to go on working. So when that company was um, sort of becoming successful, growing, becoming a corporate, um, you very famously, um, it's been cited, that you used the name Steve to sign letters because, you, as you said, the people would think it's a laughing stock that a woman would lead a company with a company full of women. <laughs> so how did that come about? And when did you stop doing that? Like, when was the moment where it's like, no? I can remember when we started, Liana, um, probably about two years in. And I was, right, I was very naive, I was very simple. I didn't know anything about marketing. So what I did was I looked in the newspapers and found advertisements for companies that were looking advertising for programmers. And I would write nicely typed letters um, before the days of word processing, um, saying in effect, I can't help you with a program, I'm not looking for a programming job, um, but I can help you with programming. And the idea was that they should say, well, come in and do our programming. But of course, nothing happened. I got next to no re responses at all. And it was my dear husband who suggested that I use the family nickname of, of Steve. And so instead of writing with that double feminine of Stephanie Shirley, it was Steve Shirley. And they began to answer my letters. And I've been Steve ever since. Um, I've certainly used it for business entirely, really. Um, I've just signed your contract saying Steve Shirley, name, Dame Stephanie Shirley. And so, I mean, that's a really good point that even now these days, there's a lot about unconscious bias when, as you've pointed out, when it comes to whether it's a job ad for um, looking to bring someone in, or it's a CV, there still seems to be an unconscious bias running throughout recruitment on that. Do you find that, or do you think it's improved? I mean, I think all of us have to become conscious of our unconscious biases, which sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, I think the good corporates um, have found ways around it by anonymising all the biodata, the CVs, um, so you can't tell if somebody is older than you expect or younger, um, if they have the colour of their skin or their sexual orientation, it's absolutely disguised while you select and recruit people for their capabilities or potential. So one of the things that you have campaigned for as well is changing the culture around uh, attitudes towards uh, women in work and working mothers. Um, so around the area, what, where are the key areas that you think that we, as a society, we really need to focus in on? Well, every survey of what women want comes up with the same two things, flexibility and work-life balance. I've never had work-life balance because I'm a workaholic, um, but flexibility you get, well, in my company, provided by freelance or salaried, part-time, flexi-time, min-max contracts, zero-hour contracts, annualised contracts, um, all ways of allowing people how they work, where they work, when they work. And if you do that, you really tap into an enormous resource of, in general, still underutilised talent.
I know that you um, have previously said about wanting to share as much of your wealth away and you have, that's why you're famous more, uh, here now on all your philanthropy and you've given away over £60 million of your wealth. What, what maybe triggered or what was the light bulb of an event or a time where you're like, okay, this is what I really want to double down on and this is where I really want to concentrate my time into? I think even if I hadn't been a refugee, I hope I would always have been a liberal. But it seems to me that the world is getting more and more diverse. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And once you have wealth of your own, um, it became a driving force to spread that around a bit. And in particular, I care about women and I care about information technology. And I also care about autism, which was my late son's condition. So those are the things that I actually give money to. But I work as a venture philanthropist. I think of projects, I set them up, I get them to a sustainable level, um, and then I step back. So I enjoy my philanthropy. It's very like business, except that the metrics are social metrics rather than the bottom line. So what has been the most surprising thing about being a philanthropist? Well, as I talked, Liana, I very much wanted to make a difference in the world, um, to make the world a fairer place. Um, so I wanted to be a good person. But in fact, philanthropy is so pleasant. It, I have so much fun. I, I could not imagine a lifestyle which um, is more um, amenable to how I want to spend my time. And that was really a surprise, that it wasn't something, a duty, but it was a sheer pleasure. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Liana. Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.